Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Malachi chapter 1, and we'll be considering what's called the second disputation of Malachi, his second speech from Malachi chapter 1 verse 6, and we'll read all the way through chapter 2 verse 9, and we're going to read it under the heading of the perfect Savior needed. The perfect Savior needed from Malachi chapter 1 verse 6 through chapter 2 verse 9. Beginning in verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present this to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering of your hand. From the rising of its sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say... What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame by lame or sick, and you bring it as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. And and if you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offering and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offering, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life. And peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. And he walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Here ends the word of the Lord this Advent morning. Well, blessed congregation, we turn this morning return, I should say, this morning to our Christmas series, The Precursors to Advent, 
where we are seeing God's last covenant word to His people before the advent of Christ. Here in Michigan, it gets dark pretty early. We are ever advancing to December 21st where we will have only 9 hours and 31 minutes of sunlight. I can see that you're all eagerly excited and awaiting that day. But as we just sang multiple times throughout this evening, this theme, this morning I should say, this theme of the darkness and the light shining in that darkness. We just sang a moment ago from this Christmas hymn, You came to us in the darkest night to make us children of the light, to make us in the realms divine as your own angels round you shine. One of the great themes of Advent is that in the darkness there is now shone a light. Now of course the Lord Jesus came and was born in the dark of night. But that's not what the darkness refers to. And then in His birth, the angels of heaven, you remember, uh, appeared to the shepherds and sang, Hosanna in the highest, lighting up the night sky. But that's not the light we're referring to. It is as Isaiah foretells. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The light is the perfect salvation of Jesus that is brought to a sin-darkened world. And what Malachi tells us is that Christ brings His light Not just to people in the darkened state of Michigan or the Northeast. He doesn't bring His light just for the Jews or for the Gentiles. But notice what Malachi says in his second speech. Even the religious people, the most influential in Israel, the people at the tippy top of their political hierarchy, the priests and the covenant people, These people too need salvation. And here in the second speech, he focuses on the worship of God. And he says what we so desperately need in the coming Advent is we need a pure offering and a perfect priest. All of this culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and who saves His people by being both that perfect pure sacrifice and being the perfect priest we need. He is that pure Lamb who offers Himself on the altar of God. That's our theme this morning. The pure offering and the perfect priest are one and the same, Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you this in two points. We want to see our pure offering and the perfect sacrifice. Let's look first at the pure offering that these people so desperately need. Malachi turns in the second speech to consider the subject of worship. And that is very evident, you see in this passage, from all of the references to the rebuilt temple. Malachi refers to the priest, the altar, the offerings, and the sacrifice. 
The prophet Haggai, another Old Testament book, tells us that the people had rebuilt the temple. They were offering sacrifices to God. Nehemiah tells us they began to read the law and the priests were giving sermons. But what the prophet wants to address in our passage here this morning is that they were not offering pure sacrifices. Look at verse 8. They were offering the blind, the lame, the sick. And God's first word to these people in this second speech is that if anyone is worthy of your best, it is Yahweh. It is God Almighty. See, sometimes as Christians, we too can fall into the trap that God should be thankful with whatever I can afford to give Him, like the Israelites did. We think, if God receives my second best or my third best lamb, that should be enough. He's just going to have to be satisfied with our time, our money, and our energy. But look at the first verse of our Scripture passage this morning. God is worthy of the best. If a son honors his father and a servant his master, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. And in this first verse, God appeals to two sets of authority that we are all familiar with, fathers and and masters. Boys and girls, If you are going to honor anyone in your life, shouldn't it be your father and your mother? Of course, that's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And we know inherently that we must honor our parents above any other person. I'll give you an example. If you miss a phone call from your uncle, probably doesn't matter that much. You miss a phone call from dad, you better call him back. We know inherently that our parents deserve honor. It's the same thing with employees. You know inherently that the boss who pays for your salary, who gives you benefits, deserves, the Lord says, fear and respect. And here's the point. If we know inherently that we must honor our fathers and our mothers, if we know that we must respect and fear our bosses, how much more so then does the Lord of hosts deserve honor? The name Lord of hosts is an important biblical title. 261 times it appears in the Old, in the Old Testament. From the Hebrew, Yahweh Sabaoth. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 24, where we see one of the instances. It's used all the way through the Psalms. But we see this in Psalm 24, verse 10. This is such an important Psalm. Uh, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Um, Who is worthy that the King of glory may come in? And the psalmist says in Psalm 24, who is the King of glory? And he says, the Lord of hosts He is the King of glory. It's an exalted term. The Lord of hosts is honorable. He is glorious. The Lord of hosts has dominion. The Lord of hosts has majesty. 
The Lord of hosts has power. And host, boys and girls, is an old word for armies. It means battalions. It means a swath of warriors and soldiers. This is one of the most exalted biblical titles. God is not just Lord over you. He's not just Lord over this world. But He is Lord over the angel armies. The most glorious of beings. Here's Malachi's point. If anyone is worthy of your best offering, if mom and dad deserve good gifts, doesn't God deserve your greatest of gifts? If anyone is worthy of your time and your energies, it is Him. In this Christmas season, as we consider the stories of the Nativity, I'm reminded of the story of the Magi, the wise men, who are honored in the Bible because they brought gifts to God, to the Lord Jesus in the manger. Flip with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We read that famous story, just a few pages over to Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men bring their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But what I want to suggest to you is that's not all they offered. Look at verse 11. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and look at what it says, and they fell down and worshipped Him. Why are they honored in the Bible? Not just because they brought good gifts, but because they brought their hearts. Let it be known that God doesn't need your gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Nor does God ever say, I need pure and perfect offerings to feed me, to appease me, whatever it might be. What God wants behind your gifts is He wants your worship. God wants your heart. And Malachi tells us, these people were worshiping. They're going to the temple. They're singing psalms. They're hearing sermons. But remember, congregation, worship is not just about the posture of your body. No, more so it's about the posture of one's heart before God. And Malachi gives us a few examples of what's going on in that day. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, when God's people came to the, ta- the temple, they showed no respect for God when they offered blind, blind and lame sacrifices. Verse 14, in prayers they would vow to give God a pure sacrifice, but then when the time came to offer it, they would offer something lame and broken. Verse 13, to make the situation worse, at the moment of offering, they would sigh in their hearts and say, what a weariness this is. Ian Duguid, a reputable Old Testament scholar, paraphrases these words like this for the modern ear. This is like someone saying, Ian Duguid notes, I hate going to church. It's frustrating and boring. It's full of hypocrites who are just going through the motions. This is just a waste of time, he says, close quote. 
See, here's the problem in Israel's day. Not just that they didn't offer the right sacrifice. That's not the problem. The problem is, verse 6, they despised the name of the Lord by withholding from Him their whole hearts. And it manifested itself in worship. My friends, do you know what worship is? It comes from an old word, worth-ship, meaning when we ascribe honor and respect to something or someone. To despise is the complete opposite of honor and respect. Let us be clear this Christmas season that God does not desire half-hearted praise. He does not desire lukewarm faith. He does not desire unenthusiastic offerings. The greatest thing you can give to God this Christmas season is your whole heart. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to Matthew, the tax collector in the New Testament. He says to Matthew, come and follow me. He's sitting in the tax booth. He's collecting the taxes. He's pilfering off of the people. And Jesus says you need to forsake your sin. You need to forsake everything else. And you need to give yourself wholly to Me, Matthew. You can't stay here half of the time and follow Me the other half. You can't keep one foot in the tax collector booth and one foot in the church. Matthew, you have to give your whole heart to Me. What is Christ saying? It's all or it's nothing. And so it is with you and I. We don't have to offer animal sacrifices anymore. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Christ is our sacrifice. But let us remember that the language of sacrifice in the Bible is used about you. Romans 12, verse 1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, we are to be a sacrifice of praise to God. Hebrews 13, verse 15. So I want to bring a little bit of conviction to Christmas this year. But I want to ask you, do we joyfully offer our hearts, our time and possessions to our idols while resenting and resisting the Lord's gracious demands for us? You know what I think was happening in Israel's heart here? They fell into that old trap The God of grace requires nothing of me. He saved us from Babylon. He took us out from there and exile of exile and brought us back to Israel and look at all we've done. He doesn't require anything more of me. Is what Israel thought. The God of grace, He won't mind a little blindness. The God of grace won't, remind, won't care if I bring a polluted offering. He's a forgiving God. Do we fall into a similar trap? He won't mind if I sleep in this morning. He's a God of grace. He won't mind if I just go to one service. He's a God of grace. Or if I skip my offering, He's a God of grace. Let us be reminded that this is a trap. 
Yes, He is a God of grace, but we are not called to willingly sin. He doesn't save us for the scraps of our life. Remember what we confess in Lord's Day 1. He makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. But where our half-heartedness is most manifest is in our worship. What does this have to do with Christmas? See, this may be hard for us to understand in the 21st century, but God cares about sacrifices. Not because He needs bulls and goats. In fact, God is very clear. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Why does God care about the sacrifices of old and the sacrifices of our lives if it's not required? Let us be clear. God cares not about sheep and goats, but what the sacrifices point towards. You see, in the Old Testament, when the people brought a perfect lamb and it was slain for their sins and its blood was sprinkled upon the altar, and then it says that they would take a piece of that meat and they would eat it in the presence of God, John Calvin says it was as if God was clothed in the flesh and dwelt among them. Jesus is said of in John 1 when He came to earth in His incarnation, He tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. One of the greatest promises of the incarnation in the Old Testament was the sacrifices. That these perfect lambs sacrificed on the altar of God were a sign of the perfect lamb who would come 400 years later. Christ had no blemish. Christ had no sin. And in His manhood, remember, John the Baptist proclaims of Him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sacrifices of old pointed to the pure sacrifice to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now God asks you, does the sacrifice of your life point to Christ? When we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the Gospel and serving God, we become the living sacrifice who says there is a Savior who can wash away all of your sins. I want to look secondly at the perfect priest this morning. Chapter headings don't fairly indicate Malachi's own speeches. I've mentioned already that this is the second of six speeches And God isn't done with Israel yet. He shifts His focus to address the priests. And there are three types of priests that will be addressed. Notice here in verse 4, God addresses Levi. And then second, He addresses the current sinful priest, verses 8 and 9. But then third, He will speak of a perfect priest in verses 4 and 7. And as what what I want to show you here, as one author uh, writes so beautifully, that the nativity scene rests in the shadow of the cross. Let us remember this Christmas season why Christ came. That He would be a priest who would offer Himself on the cross. But first, let's consider the priest Levi. This is what God is referencing in verse 4, my covenant with Levi. And we, of course, remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And from 
the tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron, God would choose priests. And these Levites, even the ones who would not be end up chosen, uh, end up being priests, would serve in the temple in God's ministry, and they were given a privileged place in the land because they weren't given a piece of land. They were told that God would be their inheritance. Boys and girls, you may not really consider what an, the importance of an inheritance, but an inheritance is, of course, your livelihood. Your inheritance is your retirement. It's your security blanket, so to speak. What God is saying is that if the priests and the people who give themselves to the ministry would give themselves wholeheartedly, would not hold anything back and serve the Lord, that He would provide for every one of their needs. And so there was two things that every priest needed to do. And it's still the same for pastors today and even Christians is they needed to talk the talk, and they needed to walk the walk. Look at what God says. A true priest should have a mouth filled with instruction, with no wrong found on his lips. And he should live what he preaches, walk in peace and uprightness, turn many away from sin. He should guard knowledge, be a source of instruction, and a messenger of the Lord. In other words, a good priest doesn't just preach integrity, he lives integrity. His actions ought to match His words. But look at what the priests in Malachi's day were doing. Verses 8 and 9. They were causing people to stumble by their instruction. Verse 9. And they were showing partiality in instruction. What is God saying? That they're failing. And not just in one account, but in both. They're causing people to stumble by their instruction. The prophet doesn't say exactly what this, tells, what this means, but remember that there are many ways pastors can fail in their vocation. Whether this is heresy, hard-heartedness, laziness, faithlessness, whatever it was, the people were listening to them and going down the wrong way. Well, what the prophet does make clear is their actions. You're showing partiality. In instruction. Now, partiality may not seem like a big deal to us. In the grand scheme of sins, it seems pretty tame. But let it be known that partiality has been the fall of many pastors and priests. I actually know of a church which I did some work in, in seminary, not a URC and a church. The pastor and the whole board of elders were suspended and deposed for covering up a sin of a member of the pastor's family. That's partiality. When we treat certain people with a different standard than others, favoring the wealthy, different rules for the influential than the marginalized. Looking the other way for our family and our friends. That's what the priests are doing. And by their actions, they were made unclean. This is why God says that shocking thing in verse 3. 
I will spread dung on your face and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And I know what you're thinking. Why did the pastor choose this for Christmas? But God is actually saying the same thing to the priest that he said to the people. I'm looking at your heart. Dung, in the Old Testament, this word actually means the unclean part of the offering, the intestines, the entrails, the parts of the offering that they would take outside the camp and burn it because it was unclean, and then they would burn the rest. What is God really saying in verse 3? He's saying, you have made yourself unclean. And even though you walk around in your robes and you preach that people ought to live moral lives and you uh, give these offerings and you proclaim peace, I see who you really are. As if you're unclean from head to toe. Do you notice in the middle part of this passage that God begins to speak about what a priest should be? And notice here, he uses what we call the singular. Verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in my mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. Is he talking about Levi here? No. Never in the Bible is a priest called the messenger of the Lord. Verse 7. He is describing a priest to come who will never let truth and instruction depart from his lips. He is describing a priest to come who will be impartial in his teaching, who will rebuke the proud and the arrogant and embrace the poor. Someone who will follow the law perfectly as a priest should, who will even lay his life down as the offerings did. Who is Malachi describing but the pure offering and the perfect priest? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was pure and coming, and who, although the unclean priest said, peace, peace, and there was no peace, the angels proclaimed of him, glory to God on the highest, and peace on earth with whom he is pleased. That through the pure and the perfect sacrifice, He has brought peace to us. What we celebrate at Christmas, it's not just that another cute baby was born into this world. But in the darkness, even the darkness of the religious life of the Israelites, a light of hope has shone. Even in all our sins and failures, the Lamb of God came to us to offer Himself on the cross for our sins. We could say in a very real way, Jesus was made to be dung for us. At the cross, He was made unclean. He was taken outside of the city. And He was cursed by God. But for the free remission of all of our sins. This is God's compassion and His love that the day spring from above has visited His people to lighten them that in darkness hide and in shades of death abide. Have you come to the light this morning?
I know we live in dark Michigan, but don't live in the darkness of your sins any longer. The light has shone in darkness, and he invites you to come and experience peace in his light. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks this Advent morning that we are able to celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came because we needed a perfect Savior. In our, according to our own hands, we kept offering unpure things. We even today struggle to offer our hearts and our lives. Even as pastors and priests, we so often fall into partiality and other sins. We could never give you the glory that you deserved. But Father, you and your mercy sent a perfect priest who would lay his life down at the cross to be even made dung for us that we might be the pure people of God. We praise you, O Lord, our King, our Savior. Amen.